everybody, Eve Harrow, and very happy to be hosting Arya Green, whom I've known for many years, who is Chief Strategy Officer at Gigawatt Global, a renewable energy platform for Africa-based, that, that is based in Jerusalem, and also serves on the boards of Jerusalem's Maaleh Film School, and Israeli co-leading online defender and promoter of Israel and Jews. And he has been very busy over the years, which is how we have run into each other. Uh, he worked for Natan Sharansky and is a business executive. And our, our paths have crossed, and we just spoke a few weeks ago about uh, kind of a, an issue that had to do with Israel and had something that I felt was, um, that was being misportrayed in the press. And the person that I call, of course, is Arya, because he is just so involved. So Arya, thank you so much. I know you just ran into the house a few minutes ago. Incredibly busy day. It's, of course, 8 o'clock in the evening here in Israel, November 15th, 2021 the 11th day of Kislev, 5781. Uh, so thank you so much for uh, for joining us here tonight, today, wherever you all may be. <laughs> yeah, well, indeed. Well, thank you for having me and, and welcome everybody, as you said, wherever they may be. I'm very, very happy, Eve, to see you again uh, and to connect again because uh, you know, we have so many different connections over the years. Uh, it's kind of yeah. going to be fun to explore a few, of, a few of the topics that we discussed in preparation since they're a little bit off the off the beaten track, off the norm. Right, off the norm. And if you're already mentioning that, so a few years ago, I interviewed you about your wonderful book called On the Israel Trail, right? If I'm not mistaken. My, that's right. My, My Israel, Israel Trail. Trail. My Israel Trail, which I highly recommend. That's just as a segue to everybody, um, where you took uh, what could have been really a catastrophic transition in your life that was not planned and you weren't happy about and hit the trail. And for eight weeks, you went on the Israel Trail You've, you discovered the country, you discovered yourself, and uh, you got yourself really back on track and rebuilt a beautiful life. And it's a, it's a very intense book. It's a very wonderful book. Even if you have nothing to do with Israel, don't, which obviously if you're watching this webinar, you probably do. Um, but, uh, but that's just as a, a sidebar. Um, and uh, really, you also well, were very so. raw about your, about your feelings about a lot of things. And it was a very interesting side of you to see. But tonight we're going for the professional side. And uh, really, you know, we talk about there was just this conference in Glasgow and carbon footprint and global warming or climate change, depending on how you want to phrase it, and renewable energy and Israel's moved over to natural gas and what's going on. So um, I know that's something that you're very involved with, specifically through this company, but uh, maybe we'll start off with a really basic question, because it's possible that I'm not the only one who doesn't really understand what is renewable energy? What does that even mean? Uh, well, <laughs> you're actually right to start off with that because it's true that that uh, a lot of people talk about kind of climate change or what have you. And as you know, COP26, the international gathering right. uh, to to kind of coordinate efforts on governmental levels um, every four years, I guess it, uh, it takes place, was just now uh, just now finished in Glasgow. Um, and a lot of people are concerned or read or think or talk about climate change, but the words and the terms renewable energy may not be that well understood. And at base, it, it describes uh, a, 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 an attempt to or an endeavor or, or actually a, uh, a field where um, energy, meaning electricity primarily, is produced from sustainable sources, meaning rather than burning coal or oil or gas, fossil fuels, um, the idea is to use existing energy sources, which uh, either replenish themselves, like water, hydro. Wind, um, or, would wind fall well, in that category? So water replenishes itself, or what I was going to say is um, sources which are not diminished by using them. Yes, right. wind uh, mm -hmm. is, is one example of that. And solar uh, is, is really the primary example right. of that because of the development of the technologies over the last, uh, let's say, um, half a century that have enabled us to harness the electrons that are emitted by the sun in order to, uh, to basically use them, capture them and, uh, and transmit them so that they can be used, those electrons can be used um, for electricity. Uh, there are other sources too, wave energy, for instance, is a very mm -hmm. new um, technology that's developing. And again, you know, waves exist as a part of our natural environment by harnessing the energy of the up and down movement of the ocean waves, we are not diminishing one iota, uh, the wave itself. And, and, and that's really what renewable energy means, that the energy itself is renewable. It doesn't 
itself it doesn't um, uh, deplete or, or it doesn't get depleted um, and uh, it doesn't harm the environment or the planet or strip the planet of resources uh, the way burning wood or coal or oil or gas or, or other fossil fuels really does. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't pollute. Well, that's Which another is, issue right. without question. Mm -hmm. That's normally an assumption, uh, some renewable energy. And let, let's face it, uh, all the use of the production of energy always has a cost. So in order to produce solar electricity, electricity from the, the photons, the electrons that come from the sun through the photovoltaic panels, those panels need to be manufactured. Right. They use steel and, and glass. They need mm -hmm. to be shipped. They need to be... Uh, um, you know, uh, um, installed, uh, they need to be distributed, they need to be sold. So these things take energy and maintained, and, and right? They need right. to be maintained. So, so th there is an understanding that renewable energy is by definition clean energy, but some is cleaner than others. Uh, mm -hmm. And some is more or less destructive than others. So I think people are aware of the fact that, that wind farms um, can affect uh, bird migratory uh, patterns. Right. That, that uh, hydropower, which has been around for many, many years, um, unfortunately, in earlier generations, there was less concern for both the environment uh, and uh, uh, indigenous peoples uh, or others whose lives were disrupted by the blocking of a, of a free-flowing river with a dam, which then fills up a huge artificial lake as a reservoir, which mm -hmm. enables the electricity that's produced to be regulated, where the water is let out according to the needs for, for energy or electricity production, but there, there is a cost. So, um, but, but you're quite right that there is an assumption which is usually justified that renewable energy also is going to be less damaging to the environment, certainly in the long run, uh, even if not uh, immediately. Mm -hmm. So, well, when we talk about, let's say, solar panels, one of the things that they take up is land. I mean, I, look, I grew up in California and I remember at the time, I think it was the Luz Company, which apparently was way ahead of their time. And they had set up solar panels in California. At some point that went out. Maybe I think the state stopped subsidizing it, whatever it was. But here in Israel, for example, we can travel around and we can see tracts in the Negev and in the areas that get substantial amounts of sunshine. Um, and then this land can't be used for anything else. So, you know, that's one issue. You see it, though, uh, for example, here in Israel, almost everyone has solar panels on their roofs of their homes. Our water for decades here in Israel has been heated by solar panels. But is that considered renewable energy? Is that considered now well, cost efficient? So first of all, let's just um, clarify, since kind of you started on the, on the technical side. Mm -hmm. um, the, the solar panels that we talk about that are ubiquitous here in Israel, and you're quite right, that, have, that uh, were put into place in the 1950s and mandatory. I think the first country in the world that where, where the production uh, uh, of heating, the heating of water was, uh, was mandated by the government to be done by, uh, by solar, uh, solar panels. These are different mm -hmm. kind of panels. That's called okay. thermal. Uh, uh, and, it, and it just takes the heat from the sun and heats up the water. Uh, and, and you're quite right. It's ubiquitous. Every, every building yeah. in has it. Um, right. So that's different than the photovoltaic cells, which in a, uh, in a solar array um, creating electricity takes the, the photons that are produced, of course, as I said, from the sun and converts them or turns them uh, into or, or allows us to use the, uh, the electrons um, and mm -hmm. transmit those electrons for, uh, for electricity use. So there are two different things, uh, heating up water um, from the heat of the sun and creating electricity from the photons of the sun. But uh, yeah, it is, it is something that Israel is relatively advanced in. Not... Right. Uh, mind you, not so advanced in terms of the, the, the PV or what's called geothermal, also a different way of, uh, of uh, creating electricity from the sun. We have a huge plant down in Ashlaim in the Negev, uh, which is uh, using a, a, different, um, a different technique to produce electricity. This is taking actually the heat from the sun, directing it through mirrors into a central, uh, mm -hmm. into a central point, which then heats up so intensely that it drives... Uh, it drives turbines um, yeah. to, uh, or, or uh, it's either turbines or boiling uh, water. You can see it from many create. miles away yeah. also. Yeah. It's very, very bright. I can't even right. look at it. That's yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. And there's, uh, there's so. another place in the Arava where they have some kind of tower. I mean, the point here is, right, well, to so create 
not to take up so much space. Right. Well, the Arava is is where um, Israel's first utility scale, commercial scale solar um, company and solar field was created at Kibbutz Keturah by Yosef Abramowitz, who's our mutual friend, who's the head of my right. company, Gigawatt Global, uh, where we're building our solar and wind fields in Africa. Um, and uh, Yosef started the Arava Power Company, and, and the Arava Power Company built Israel's first utility-scale solar fields. Um, mm-hmm. Today, by the way, it's very, I, I started to say that we don't produce enough of our electricity from renewable sources or from the sun. Um, but I will say at least it's something that we're very proud of in terms of many of the people in our company at Gigawa Global who came from the Arava Power Company, that uh, the Eilat and Southern Negev Arava region is the first region, definable region in the world, on the planet, to be 100% powered by solar really? during the day. Wow. We, we reached that, uh, that very important kind of pivotal point in March of this year. Huh. Uh, and so it's a very, it's a very important... It is huge. And the truth is that Israel could be entirely powered by solar electricity during the day if we would release enough land, including land that's owned or controlled by Bedouin, land that's owned or controlled by Kibbutzim, land that's mm-hmm. owned or controlled by, by the JNF, um, if it was repurposed to, uh, to accommodate the kind of solar fields that we're talking about, the whole country could be, could be powered. I, you know, you should know, Eve, uh, and our listeners and, and watchers should know, 30% of Germany's electricity is produced by renewable energy, primarily solar. 30%. Really? You're talking about a country that is in the center and north of Europe, Okay. The solar well, it's much less sun than we do, I would imagine. Precisely. The solar radiation wow. that we have in Israel is, is 100 times. I think they have, don't quote me on this number, but I think it's maybe 150 days of sun a year. We have 360, 358, whatever the hmm. number is, is, of sun days a year, depending on where, but certainly down Right, for sure. So right. We could be doing a lot better. And uh, I think that's one of the things that our government uh, has been moving towards. Yes. Um, oh, good. To, to promote more, more renewable energy. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, there's some wind turbines that you see also like on the Golan, but they make a lot of noise. I mean, I remember being in Holland, seeing the windmills and being, I think it was in Pennsylvania where they had them in some of the farms, but th- they really make a, a lot of noise. It's not, it's not so simple. So uh, well, solar so, seems the way to go. I don't know. Um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. I don't know if I would say um, within the context of trying to promote more and more uh, renewable energy. Uh, I might prefer solar where solar is available, but if there's no solar radiation and there's terrific wind power mm. to be harnessed, then there are both places and ways to do it where it is less disruptive, less noisy, less disruptive to, to wildlife, uh, and, and less perhaps uh, disruptive to the views. Right. And you can, as you say, we have quite a few on the Golan. In fact, one of our partners uh, is one of the original um, initiators of the, the Golan wind farms, uh, Elon Goldstein, is our partner in our Gigawatt Wind Division. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we're building in Zambia, we're developing a project there, which is a very large 70 megawatt project hybrid joint uh, combined solar and wind field where the sun will power the, the field and power and provide electricity to the grid during the day. And as the sun's electricity uh, wanes, um, the electricity production wanes as the sun goes down. The, the place that we have identified, which just is, is terrific, the wind comes up it's in up. the early evening and all night blows <laughs> to provide uh, um, pretty uh, um, reliable electricity during the night. So wind has but a can, place in the energy mix. But can't the electricity be banked? I mean, it seems to make sense that during the day, so you have the sun is up, so you have solar energy. But there's no way of storing it so that it can even at two in the morning, if you decide that you're up and need to do laundry, you could still use the solar power. First of all, I think that that one of the most important elements of of, uh, all of these discussions, whether it's about climate or whether it's about uh, the the environment or or what have you, is that what every country, what every society needs is a is a mix. Uh, And the question is, how do you. How do you get the best mix, which is both going to provide the best and the most reliable source of electricity to a community, to a society, to a nation, um, and uh, least expensively, you know, at, mm-hmm. at, the, at the lowest cost, and at the least, uh, at, the, at the most minimal effect on the environment or, or, or the planet? 
And so when you're talking about a grid, especially in a developed nation, I, there, may, there may well be a need for nuclear, for, for natural gas uh, and, and other sources. And anything is better than the dirty burning of coal or steel right. or in more, in more uh, uh, rudimentary economies, wood, wood chips or cow chips even. Um, mm -hmm. So anything is better than that for health and for the environment and pollution and what have you. Um, so you have a, a sliding scale. So if you have to, right. in order to have a, a reliable grid, you have to burn some uh, natural gas or use relatively clean nuclear um, power. So, so it, it's a question of a mix. It's really not, mm -hmm. I think like so many things today, and we've talked about that, about how to promote or to present Israel and the, the complex right. nature, nature of, our, of our situation here, you know, there are no simple answers. Anybody who gets up and says, we should be relying only on solar energy means that I guess they don't want to use their computers or their telephones at night. Um, because, yeah, you've identified a very important issue, storage. You remember better place and the whole issue? Sure. Of, uh, I used um, to take people to drive their cars, which were very quiet. It was, very the plug quiet. It was well, basically charge up your car. You had a battery so electric, instead of gas. Well, yeah. so electric, electric cars themselves have, prevent, has, have presented a tremendous challenge, which is the same challenge as you just raised. Uh, which is the challenge of storage because batteries are large, cumbersome, expensive, mm -hmm. and inefficient. And the, the technology of battery storage is changing, is developing, um, but we're a few years away of efficient and effective small and lightweight batteries um, to enable the kind of storage capacity that we're looking for, whether it's in a grid-connected, large utility-scale, commercial-scale solar field, or whether it's in a small electric car. Those are some of the challenges that there are Israeli companies, as you know, working I'm to sure. resolve those challenges. <laughs> I have right? no even, doubt. Even as we speak. So, you know, one of the things that's come up, and I think this year more than I did, I saw an ad the other day that said, if it's made in America, it's not going to get stuck on a ship. Something along ah, those lines. That. Yes, I saw that. Right? Very clever. So, I mean, I, but I think that that brings back to, you know, we were so used to, you just order from here and you order from there and then it comes. And now we see not just because of COVID, because of a lot of different reasons, that sometimes you have to rely on what your country can make. So I guess if you're sitting in Venezuela and Saudi Arabia, you're going to con continue to burn fossil fuels because you have a lot of it under your feet. But in a country, let's say, like Israel, where we have the sun, it seems to make sense to be able to rely on something that we don't we're not dependent on anybody else for. And I would say that all countries maybe should be in that situation now to be as also self-sufficient as they possibly be. So let's jump over to what your company and others are doing in Africa. Is that part of the idea of, of how you're helping Africans really get on the grid? I mean, let's talk about the, the incredible work that you're doing there in a continent that needs some help. Let's put it that way. Well, thank you for saying so. And uh, yeah, I mean, look, there are 600 million people in Africa without access to electricity. Amazing uh, yeah, number. Yeah, you have to stop and think about that number for a second. That's twice as many people as live in all of America. Uh, and that means no refrigerator. Like, forget means, computer and Wi-Fi. No refrigerator. And it's funny, because we haven't discussed this previously in our, in our conversations before, but that is precisely the issue that people don't get. It's not talking about just not being able to, to charge your cell phone you know, no. efficiently. Or, or, or occasional power outages in a, in a country that's on its way to becoming a developing nation. You're talking about the inability to refrigerate medicines or to refrigerate food or to light a, a light bulb in a school uh, environment. In other words, there, there, you don't have the electricity to pump clean water out of the ground. So you're talking about health, food scarcity, um, dehydration, uh, disease, and death. I, there, there are people dying because there is no energy to, to enable life-saving medi life medicines to be stored or operations to be carried out. And then you, you obviously can add to that the, the, the not life and death, but certainly quality of life issues of the lack of economic development. You sure. need energy in order to uh, run any business or have even just a small factory, even if you're talking about rudimentary societies or, or traditional societies. So yeah, it's a, there's a tremendous and growing need uh, in, in the African continent. And we've been very lucky. And there's no question that you're right. There's a history of Israel 
reaching out to Africa to provide um, different kinds of not just aid, but assistance. Um, we did back in the 50s, you know, agricultural yeah. assistance to, to African nations. Golden Meir started in, uh, yeah. in the early 50s in the, in the foreign ministry, a program called Mashav, which is a yeah. program in the foreign ministry, which, which basically provides technical or other sorts of training and assistance to African nations specifically to help lift them out of poverty, to help to promote mm -hmm. humanitarian goals of economic development, of women's empowerment, of, of health and, and food uh, um, uh, security yeah. uh, and, and the like. So There's a program here in Israel, for those who don't know, called Save a Child's Heart, where pro bono, some of the best doctors in Israel, they bring in doctors from Africa, they train them. First of all, they bring in kids from Africa and give them free yes. surgery and from yes. all the Arab countries, most of whom As we have a, no relations with. Yep. And they, yep. Uh, you know, and they treat these kids. It's an unbelievable program. But what they also do is train African doctors. I've been in there. I've seen it to go back to Africa, not to come here and work here in, in Tel Aviv, but to go back to Africa and treat their own people. So there's been this longstanding connection really for many years that I think people really don't know about. Well, that, that's true. Um, and that's why I wanted you, you on. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned uh, Save a Child's Heart, which is a terrific right. program. Another one, and these are nonprofits, of course. We, we yes. are a for-profit business, um, Gigawatt Global, and, and our headquarters are in Jerusalem, although we're actually officially formerly a Dutch entity, but we work and we serve the, the diplomatic and the strategic interests of the state of Israel, so much so that, in fact, our company is one of the only private companies that has uh, accompanied the prime minister of Israel and the president of Israel and the foreign minister of Israel on their trips to, to Africa. Um, but there are a lot of, and then I was just discussing the government's um, activities in different countries in Africa. In right. fact, one of, our, one of our project developers was just in a meeting in a, a, a sub-Saharan African country, which I can't name. Um, since they're joining a, a foreign ministry delegation um, to specifically promote renewable energy projects and, uh, and the relationship between Israel and this country. Um, but you're quite right to mention there are a lot of NGOs, of nonprofit organizations mm -hmm. who are very active. One of them, by the way, one of the most amazing is called Innovation Africa. Yeah, oh, she's wild. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with Sivan. Sivan Yari, yeah, for many years. David Yari, yeah, they're very good friends of, of mine and ours. And Gigwat is, is proud to, to have helped them uh, in a modest way over the years. Um, and yeah. Sivan and, and Innovation Africa, um, which used to be called Jewish Heart for Africa, um, basically provides uh, facilities for, for clean water for. Um, uh, just hundreds and hundreds of communities um, in mostly in East Africa branched out a bit into solar itself because they needed solar arrays to help pump the water out of the ground. And so providing also small solar installations to help promote economic development uh, and, and the like in small businesses in the communities they're active in. And there, there are many other NGOs from Israel, yes, which are many. basically... I don't really like to use the term tikkun olam a lot because I believe it's overused in, in various different ways, especially in the American Jewish community, where it's kind of replaced um, a, a traditional yeah. view of Judaism and Jewish values. And yet, this is a very good example of what tikkun olam really is about in terms of Israel reaching out to bring a light, a solar light, unto repair the Repair the world. Uh, yeah, to, yeah. And, to and to repair the world and make the world a better place. With, right. uh, with its activities. And Sivan and Innovation Africa definitely uh, is, is a leader in that, in that endeavor. It's a beautiful thing. And A, it's not like we're getting a lot of credit for it. Most people don't even know about it. A lot of people have the nerve to still call Israel a racist country when most of the time is being spent here on bettering the lives of people with black skin, okay, right. which yeah. is never given credit for, just to be very, very blunt and very important. And um, it's not like they're going to be suddenly voting at the UN. I mean, it's not a cynical enterprise, even though it's fine that you're for profit and people do need to also, companies need to be able to generate income in order to keep going and doing the things that they're doing. Sure, right, of course. So tell us a little bit more about, well, like some of the projects and pictures. Do you have something that we can see for what the company's oh, doing? And um, um, maybe, sure. no, let, yeah, let something me. ready so we could actually see what's going <laughs> on down there. Because, uh, you know, I'm picturing like a little solar panel on a thatched hut. I don't know exactly <laughs> if that's, so if that's here, the correct image. Here's a, here's a picture, uh, I assume you can see, of uh, kind of a, a uh, collage of uh, a few different Ooh. pictures. 
Um, here's a picture of our, one of our solar fields, but this is a picture of a collage. The one in the center you can see uh, is actually shaped like the, uh, the continent of Africa. This was our first solar field oh, wow. in Africa. This is in Rwanda. Um, it's actually built on the uh, on land owned by over in the corner here. You can see uh, a small village. It's called the Agozo Shalom Youth Village. And yes, you heard right. Shalom is part of its name because as a youth village, it was created for the orphans from the Rwanda uh, Civil War. Um, and uh, it was based on a, a model coming out of the Kiryat Noar movement in Israel that uh, um, helped to rehabilitate orphans from the Shoah, from the Holocaust. Mm. Uh, and it, based on that model, they called it the Agozo Shalom Youth Village, where there's a school and housing and what have you. And, and this field, which is the first commercial scale, utility scale to be built in sub-Saharan Africa, we built it in 2014, um, is, uh, has a wonderful relationship with the Agozo Shalom Youth Village. And as I said, it's built, I think we have another photo of it uh, here, hold on. I'm just flipping through because we're not here to really right. talk about the, the company. Here's another photo of it. Um, be, oh, it's cool. in, the sh in the shape of, uh, of the, um, of, uh, the African continent. Now I skipped through a picture of, this is the field that we just recently built in Burundi. Now Burundi is a neighbor of Rwanda, but Burundi is one of, unfortunately, one of the poorest it was just actually listed last week again as the poorest nation on the planet. Um, and uh, if this field in Rwanda is already providing for over half a decade, about 6% of that country's electricity generating capacity, this field in Burundi, which is even smaller than the Rwanda field, is already providing over 10% of that country's oh. electricity. And I, just, just to give you a feel, we were talking before about the 600 million people in Africa who have no access to electricity. So just mm -hmm. to give you a feel of what we're talking about here, Burundi is a country that's just about the same size as Israel in terms of not physical size, but in terms of the number of people. About 11 million people uh, is the population of Burundi. Um, Burundi uses in a year the same amount of electricity that Israel uses in a half an hour. In a half an hour? I thought you were going to say a day. In a half wow. an hour. Now, when I asked uh, Hannah Klein, our, uh, our chief engineer, head of research and project management, she's a PhD in solar energy. I asked her a few years ago to give me a, uh, an indice or, or a way that I could describe how energy poor Africa is and countries like Burundi. And, and that's what she gave me. That they use the same number of people use in a year the amount of electricity that Israel as a developed nation uses in a half an hour. And then we can understand what the gap, what the gap really is within the context of, of, our, uh, of the modern world today. I have uh, here again, I'm skipping through because I, I want to share with you here. If you take, just take a look at this as, a, as an understanding, um, the average consumption per person in America of electricity is 13 and a half thousand kilowatt hours. The average consumption in sub-Saharan Africa in, in a year, in a what? In, in a in, in consumption per capita per year. Per year, okay. Okay, so five hundred. So, wow. Right, five hundred versus thirteen and a half thousand. You understand that that the the, the disconnect here between sub-Saharan Africa and the United States of America is is of a uh, a level that is almost impossible to understand. It's almost impossible right. to to really. Have, uh, have a feeling for what, what that means. I'm just skipping to another kind of fun picture here because we said we were gonna show some pictures um, as opposed to uh, uh, presenting the, the company and it's um, right. uh, just by the way, for people who are watching or listening, we're actually raising our last friends and family round of investment now uh, this month, this, uh, these few weeks as we- Oh yeah, we okay. So I, I, I'm, I'm happy to share with you if anybody's listening and interested, we're, we're looking for investors to help us build out our pipeline of projects throughout uh, sub-Saharan Africa. And what I'm showing you here is a picture of the women's cooperative in Mabuga, the village uh, where we're bu we built this last field in Burundi. And women's empowerment and providing local em uh, employment is a very important element of our company. And that's why I'm sharing this with you uh, again. But who's again, the lady this, in the middle? This is Hannah. This is Hannah, who I met ah. 
uh, our head of uh, project management. And uh, tell her to dress more colorfully when she goes down there, <laughs> <laughs> because otherwise, you so, know, she can fit right in. Okay. Right. Exactly. Anyhow, so yeah. uh, th th those are some of the images that, I, that I'm happy to share with you, just to, to, to get a feel for what it is that we do and and the real people that we're affecting and the projects that we're that we're well so here. so let me ask you i mean I don't, I don't know if you can answer like who pays for this i mean if you have these incredibly poor countries mm. um but they have all the i mean it, it's almost like a, a catch-22 it's a very poor country but they don't have so they don't have the money to buy certain necessities like you know being able to have the electrical plants in order to get them out of that cycle of poverty it, yeah there are there world organizations that kind of kick them up the ladder, at least that first step, so that they wow. can do this? How, how does it work? Since you, since you asked, you can see this kind of hodgepodge of, of uh, company USA, names and organizations. Yeah. So basically, these are the leaders in, the, in, in the, the financing of both our renewable energy projects and because we are um, supported by all of those leaders in the world. These are the leaders in the world, the World Bank, USAID, which is the American uh, Development Aid uh, mm -hmm. arm. Um, the DFC at the top right there is the U.S. Development Finance Corporation. And it's basically the first time the United States has had a development bank. FMO is the, really? is, is the Dutch Development Bank. Norfund is the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world. Nor Norway's sovereign wealth fund. Uh, I mentioned the World Bank. Um, some of the largest companies that are involved in uh, renewable energy infrastructure projects are those that we partner with, like Scatec, which built and manages our Rwanda field, and Voltalia, a French and Portuguese firm, which uh, built and now manages our, our Burundi field. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of these uh, alphabet soup um, are, uh, are international development finance institutions like EEP, the Energy and Environment Partnership, or the Renewable uh, Energy um, Partnership Platform which is an arm of the British government. Globalec, which is a private equity firm set up by the Crown Development Corporation, which is the British government's development bank. I mean, these are the major players in promoting uh, these kind of infrastructure projects and, and uh, bringing greater, uh, greater electricity to, to Africa. One of the leading ones, Power Africa here at the top, you can see, is right. the initiative by the American government to bring more electricity to uh, to so Africa. they fund so they fund it or at least they start. So, yeah, yeah, some of these organizations the that I'm mentioning uh, help to fund. Some of them provide mm -hmm. what's called advocacy, meaning the economic attaches or ambassadors of, of the United States, of Israel, of Britain, of the EU, of uh, of Holland, help to promote our projects in the different uh, um, in the different markets and countries that we're in. The World Bank is a real partner. Um, uh, of ours, as as are all the others that you that you saw saw listed there. Mm -hmm. And, those, and how, how do you decide? How's the decision made? Uh, what countries to go into? You know, like you mentioned, a couple countries here that most of us probably never heard of, and certainly couldn't point out on the map. I mean, it, isn't there an element here? Uh, let's face it; these are most of these countries, if not all, are not democracies. Most of them probably do not have the most stable governments around. How like who how how does this parse out about uh, about where first, to go in and what the needs are where what the priorities okay. are? First of all, you are correct. Um, these our focus, our specialty is excuse me is to work specifically in those markets in those countries um, where uh, which are more challenging, which are yeah. less developed, uh, where others are are more reticent. To go. I mean, we've been active in South Sudan uh, for the last mm. six years, including in two years when the United States government pulled out of supporting any projects in South Sudan and even asked us to cease our work. And we refused because wow. we believed in the future of the country. And they're very happy now, the United States government, the DFC, the Development Finance Corporation, is very interested in helping to provide the financial backing, what's called the refi, the refinancing of uh, the field that we're building there um, when we get mm -hmm. to that point. Um, mm -hmm. And so you're right. These are very difficult markets, very challenging. They may be right. uh, they may be ripe with corruption. They may have inefficient, ineffective bureaucracies. They may not have any regulatory structure to allow an independent power producer to to work in the country and/or to connect to the grid. 
Um, they may not have strong enough grids. They may, did I mention corruption? Mm, I, this you is did. Africa. Um, yes. And How about so, civil wars or all kinds of unrest right. that could make it so, dangerous for you guys to be there as well? Well, so, so the, the first answer to the question is um, with regard to safety um, and other issues, including corruption. We have a rigorous um, uh, decision-making process in our company where we evaluate all these different indicators, the stability of the economy and the political system, uh, the, mm -hmm. the uh, level of corruption and the ability to, to, to do business in the, in the country, um, as well as uh, more technical issues like uh, solar radiation, for instance, if you can build a solar field, um, right. and the, the size of the grid, the grid capacity, what have you. So, so we go through a number of different steps before we are willing to move into a market. Um, but the other thing that I want to share with you, which, which uh, many people are not aware of, certainly uh, even investors who aren't either interested in or, or familiar with these kind of large long-term, uh, long time frame infrastructure projects like uh, a solar field, um, or who aren't very familiar with Africa themselves, um, is that the international community recognized a number of years ago, led by the World Bank, that there was no way all the philanthropy in the world, the Bill Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, and, and many others could not possibly, with all the philanthropy that they had directed at Africa, resolve the energy poverty that uh, we already discussed that, that permeates the continent. So there was no question that the trillions of dollars needed to really bring the continent out of uh, its, its energy poverty situation um, had to come from the private sector. But the international community recognized that the private sector is not going to invest $20 million or $200 million into a six-year development project to develop a field when, as you say, mm -hmm. there could be a civil war, there could be a revolution, the government sure. could nationalize the energy sector as Venezuela just did a few months ago. Um, and so Oops. what they developed, yeah, led by the World Bank, they developed a powerful set of tools, um, what, what we would call risk, risk mitigation mechanisms, including, just to address one of the things you raised, political risk insurance, which basically hmm. says if you invest in our solar field from the minute the deal is signed and construction begins, means it doesn't wait until the field is actually built. From the minute construction begins, your investment in this infrastructure project is guaranteed in the case of a nationalization or a civil war or a coup uh, or what have you. And you're by, by whom? Lloyds of by, London? Like who's? It, it's, there, yeah. are all sorts of, there are all sorts of different, oh. both private country, cool. companies and government organizations. The DFC, the Development Finance Corporation, for instance, provided the PRI, the Political Risk Insurance for our Burundi field. That's um, huge. The World Bank has a whole division called MIGA, M-I-G-A, the Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency, uh, which provides these services. And there are a number of others. Africa um, Trade Insurance was our partner uh, for part of some liquidity uh, issues that, that we were providing guarantees for um, mm -hmm. with our field. So, yeah, the thing is that led by the World Bank, the international community created these mechanisms which provide an envelope where a private investor is is not just secure in knowing their investment will not be uh, squandered, um, but, and I say this jokingly, you can even imagine some of these investors hoping for a coup because they're going to get 90% of their investment, their initial investment back immediately, and they're going to get paid now the present value of the contractual obligation of what's called a power purchase agreement, 25 or 30 years worth of recurring revenue streams. They'll get the present value of that paid up right now within seven days if there's a coup. So I say yeah. it obviously jokingly. Facetiously, yes. Facetiously, nobody's really looking for that, but you could imagine that that is the comfort level that's been oh, created yeah. by the World Bank and the international community to encourage private investment in these kind of, these kind of infrastructure uh, um, projects. Have you seen a difference? I mean, you've been involved already for a few years now. Have you seen a difference in the quality of life, uh, the daily life you talk about? Let's, we just had a pandemic. Have they been able to get I don't even know what's going on there with vaccines. You know, do we have less deaths, let's say, from, you know, drinking bad water or the infant mortality rate? Like, are, are there any numbers here to show that um, that the, this investment is making a difference? So um, I, I would answer that in, in a few different ways. 
first of all, um, a country like Rwanda with a stable economy um, has been growing, their economy has been growing and providing 6% of their, uh, of their electricity has certainly had uh, an impact. Beyond that, on the, in the local community, um, our field has provided the funding, the rent that we pay in terms of our agreement with the, the land owned by the Gozashon Youth Village um, has provided the funding for their health clinic um, at, the, uh, at the youth village, which also serves the surrounding community already for, for six, seven years. Similarly, right. the, the kind of employment that our, uh, our projects have provided for the local communities um, has been uh, very strongly That's felt in, in those local communities. Beyond that, um, we haven't yet to evaluate or see the Burundi field has been up and running only for a few months, mm-hmm. um, how that 10% increase in the, in the uh, electricity um, capabilities or capacity of, uh, of Burundi has affected their economic development. But it goes without without saying, and there's no I mean, question it that, it, that, it will, yeah. that it will provide tremendous benefits. On top of that, you mentioned about Corona or COVID. So we actually, for our local community where we were building the field, we, for instance, put up, and this is more of what's called uh, um, corporate social responsibility um, programs. We put up washing stations for uh, the local community to help with, uh, with public hygiene um, mm-hmm. within the context of Corona. Um, mm-hmm. In all our fields around uh, uh, around the continent where we build, we have a, uh, a corporate social responsibility program in place. Each one is different, but we provide local families and uh, and villages with it, with employment. Um, and we're looking to build small mini grids or micro grids uh, adjacent to our grid connected um, utility scale fields to provide. Um, little uh, village or local communal um, uh, business hubs where small businesses can run sewing machines or, right. uh, or wheat grinders, um, uh, mills, mm-hmm. um, or just charging stations or, or what have you for, for local businesses. Um, mm-hmm. But there's no question that, that the more electricity that's available... Right the more economic development is going to be possible for, for all of these societies on a, on a macro level. Mm-hmm. Somebody asked on the chat, where are these panels are made? Is there one place? Are they made in Israel? Are they made more locally? Can you say? So, um, uh, yeah, uh, we, we pers- in terms of our company, we source mm-hmm. our panels from what are called tier one uh, um, providers, and they could be usually China, but uh, they can also be in, uh, from, uh, from uh, Europe or from America. Uh, there are other technical uh, pieces of equipment like inverters, which come also from either Asia or Europe or, or America. And not so much from Israel because Israel is less a manufacturer than obviously an innovation right. um, center. Right. Um, but uh, uh, that's just kind of part of the, part of the world economy. There are, there are, to my knowledge, no uh, um, panel manufacturers yet in Africa, and when and if there there are at the uh, the level of uh, um, of uh, professional manufacturer that, that we require, we of course would be happy to source to source right. our panels from there. Right. So, I mean, for the last few minutes that we have, I'd like to jump to the, the really the topic that you and I have been discussing for many many years, which is. Israel advocacy, and you're, you're not someone who just talks about the need for Israel to have better PR, and we all say that, and whose fault is it? Is it the foreign ministry? Should this be private? But you've actually been very involved with starting organizations um, that went out and did that. So you can t- tell us a little bit about that side of your life and that, those involvements? Well, today uh, I'm, much more, um, I'm much more involved in... Uh, um, kind of promoting the reasserting the legitimacy of Israel on a, on a macro level. Um, I used to be involved, as you know, very much in, uh, in helping to, to encourage journalists to be more accurate in the way that they promote uh, <laughs> the way that they present Israel. I've always said that accuracy is Israel's best ally. Um, yes. That, uh, that uh, we don't need to be rah-rah pro-Israel in any of our activities. That's true in uh, it, certainly with regard to the media. Advocacy has its place, definitely within the, the, the corridors of political power, because you want to advocate a particular policy. 
um, uh, or a policy line. And the truth is advocacy has a place, I think, on college campuses as well, because I think there's, there's a need for assertive um, making the case and arguing the case to defend Israel and to support Israel. But with the media, I've always said that, that advocacy backfires because the media isn't, isn't um, at least they don't see themselves good, real first-tier media. Um, media outlets uh, don't see themselves as having a role of advocating a particular policy prescription or, or, or political line. We know they do, many of them, but they right. don't see themselves as doing so. And so therefore, we, we always appealed to them at the organization that I ran for a decade called Media Central to, mm-hmm. to simply be accurate because we know those of us who live here, those of us who, who intimately know Israel and our society and our history and the people and our, uh, the defensive nature of our military operations, we know that the truth is on their side. So all we want or need is for that truth to be reflected in the reporting about mm-hmm. Israel. And so that, that was a, a very big focus of mine for many years, but including when I worked with Nathan Sharansky and, and was very active on college campuses. But since uh, taking my hike on the Israel Trail and writing my book, um, I, I've been focusing these last five, uh, seven years much more on the higher level, uh, as I said, reasserting the legitimacy of Israel, kind of re- recapturing the narrative, as it were, um, mm-hmm. re- reasserting the, the truth, uh, the factual nature of the connection of the Jewish people, the people of Israel, to our ancestral homeland, the land of Israel. Um, we don't, I don't think, Eve, all of us active in uh, promoting Israel and defending Israel on campus, in the media, in the political realm, we don't use enough the language um, that I think is so very powerful. And people like Ryan Belarus and, uh, and many others that you, yes. of course, are familiar with do. It's delightful. Um, um, and, and have encouraged us to do so. And lately, by the way, Prime Minister Netanyahu and Prime Minister Bennett in the last, uh, I would say, two to three years have started to adopt this kind of linguistic, very strong, assertive approach, for for instance, uh, using the term ancestral homeland, Mm -hmm. which is used by Native Americans, the First Nations and Aboriginals to recognize this is our ancestral homeland, Uh, turning on its face the the tremendously inaccurate um, presentation of the the Arabs who self-identify as uh, quote-unquote Palestinian as if they're like the Native Americans or the American, right. the American Indians or Aboriginals. So, so that phrase, for instance, is something that I've been promoting very strongly in all my talks and all my writing. Um, and another is the, the term indigenous. There, there's something uh, almost obscene uh, about the, 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 the talking, chattering classes in the West, in the, in the academic world, in, in certain political circles, who see the Arabs as somehow indigenous to the land of Israel. And when I say mm-hmm. obscene, I, I mean that almost uh, in an academic sense. It's absurd when you just think linguistically. Arabs are from where? Arabia. And Jews are from where? Judea. Judea. And the people of Israel are from the land of Israel. It's, just so, it, it's almost um, kind of, it should be an automatic uh, a recognition. And we don't use that term enough. We don't assert and that's why i say it's reasserting the legitimacy of zionism and, and israel we need to assert that truth uh in in all of our activities and so i've been doing that a lot in my public speaking in my in my in my uh, uh online presence and obviously that that wasn't the purpose of the book when i wrote my israel trail it was about hiking israel from one you know end of the the country to the next uh all alone by the way i should add at age 51 with a with a 50 pound pack on my back. Um, and it was about the people I met and, and, uh, yeah. and the country and, and the hike. It was also about the lessons that I learned to help me to get over my, my devastating divorce. It was a personal growth story, but, but permeating the entire story is, is that issue of our connection to the land and our history and the legitimacy of our return to our ancestral homeland, which, which uh, I've gotten a lot of feedback. Um, people have enjoyed partially because it's not a polemic. It, it, right. it wasn't written, written as, oh, let's defend Israel. It just comes out as the truth. You know, mm-hmm. when you stumble over the tomb of Isaiah the prophet up in the north uh, in, in virtually unmarked uh, a grave with a forest, you know, and, and, a, and not even a paved road leading to it, and you suddenly realize when it says that it's the tomb of Isaiah, Ishayahu ben Amot, Isaiah the right. son of Amot, 
and you stop and you turn your phone on and you look it up just do you want to take a break and mm-hmm. understand the tree and see that this is the prophet Isaiah like yeah the one like one Isaiah one, Isaiah yeah Isaiah Isaiah swords and right. chairs, you know which is over the, the portals of the entrance to the UN and, and you recognize it's not like hiking the Appalachian this is no. not hiking like hiking the Pacific Crest Trail or the uh, or or Machu Picchu. This is this is our ancestral homeland, and and that recognition was something that was very important for me to include in in the book, even though that wasn't the purpose uh, mm-hmm. of writing the book. So, right, right. Well, I sometimes think though that we're part of the problem. You know, I was listening when you're talking about Africa. And it's really kind of a, a northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere issue. Um, virtually all the countries that you mentioned are northern hemisphere countries. The strong countries in the world, for whatever reason, seem to be located in the northern hemisphere. And the more mm. weaker countries, with a few exceptions, Australia, maybe South Africa, etc., seem to be south of the equator. I don't know why that is, and we could probably have a whole discussion about that. But those of us who do... Um, Israel advocacy, for lack of a better word, um, tend to do it, it from a more European or North, Northern Hemisphere perspective, because that is where a lot of us are either from or that's the language that we speak when you talk about the terminology. And after living here for now well over 30 years, it, it's more and more clearer to me that we're, real, we're Middle Easterners. And when you get back to that Israel trail, that's we're, we're part of the Middle East. When you look in the Bible, you talk about Africa, like Solomon, King Solomon spent a whole lot of, he wasn't trading with Norway. He was down in what we would call probably today's Yemen, Ethiopia. I mean, this was the area, this was the pull. And I think maybe more, if we more internalize where we are, and it's hard to do culturally and language wise, et cetera, then that it will that will fit more into who not just who we were but where we've come back to. So there's a lot that's going. There's many many layers that are going on here. I mean, we don't necessarily do Israel advocacy in the Arab world, although something like the Abraham Accords is a tremendous thing. That there's that language now. There's that mutual respect. We can be cynical and say they've got the money, we've got the brains, and that's where we're going. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Let's if we're not fighting each other, that's already good. <laughs> that's already a good thing. So, but you know, we're, spe- definitely but we're speaking to a Western world that doesn't, it's not sitting here like you and I are privileged to sit here with really those perspectives. I mean, you're, you sit, you work in Jerusalem, your focus is Africa and to help some of the poorest people on the planet. But at the same time, you're with diplomats. And I imagine different people wearing, you know, suits that cost thousands of dollars because that's their world. I mean, you're really in many, many different worlds. And, um, and, and that fact that, but what I know, because I know you for a long time, that the, en- the, the energy that you get is not solar energy. The energy that you have is the energy from our traditions, from our belonging here, from that connection that we have to this place. I see it because I see it in myself. This is like, this place gives me energy that I can't get anywhere else. Um, and it just saddens me that there are just so many people, both Jews and non-Jews, who don't understand that, who are not willing to give us a break. And, and I understand that it's complicated and the other side also has things that are right and we haven't done everything right, not by a long shot. But there is so much more here that is positive than we are given credit for. It's so frustrating. And just to hear you speak about, you know, the, the advances that you're making, that people should have a better life and why should we necessarily care is uh, you say tikkun olam, repairing the world. But that's really very much a part of what this little country is in so many different ways. And, um, you know, it's been hard. I mean, for all of us, the last couple of years, people haven't been able to come to visit. And now hopefully things are opening up and people will be able to again. And, and I would advise those of you who, who will hopefully come here soon, either because you come all the time and haven't been able to or because you've never been here, to really try and take a look beyond the standard profile of Israel, the standard things, and really try and meet some of the Israelis who are doing things quietly, and if you don't mind my saying so, under the grid, um, that that are so much more and so much more important to the world. Um, it's I, I don't even know if I'm making any sense anymore because it's, it's just so powerful. And just listening to you and really knowing you for a long time, 
and the tremendous work, a lot of it you don't even talk about, a lot of the people that you've met with, a lot of the effect you've had on people you can't talk about because then it would ruin it. So it's been quiet conversations and it's been phone calls and different articles and trying to tweak things. And sometimes even one word in a headline can change the entire picture of that article. And, um, and you know, you are one of the people who's been doing that for a long time, um, probably not gotten the credit that you deserve. And there's, there's quite a few like that. And I really, so I want to thank you for, come, you know, for really appearing here tonight, because uh, I think that you're owed a great thanks. And some of the organizations you began are continuing Maybe not as they were when you were there. And that's another issue that I'm not going to talk about publicly. I'm not always so happy with uh, some of your the people that took over. But it's an, it's an ongoing battle and it's only getting more difficult in, in so many ways. And um, so, I mean, I think everybody has to take, if you're not doing something, then you're actually letting the other side win because there, there are just so many fronts here that have to be dealt with. I mean, you briefly mentioned college campuses and that comes up all the time. So it seems like it's almost like we've lost it. And the kids, it's just too hard for them. You know, they go to campus, they just want to get an education, maybe meet somebody nice, have some beers on Saturday night with friends, have a good time. But they, and but to be pro-Israel is you're going to get a, you know, a swastika on your dorm door and you're going to get, it's just not worth it. It's just almost not worth it. And, uh, and I feel, and I've said it before, it's like throwing goldfish into a, into a shark tank. Um, do you think that there's, and I know Nachin Shuransky, who is just one of the outstanding people. I mean, he just, there's no words for what he mentally he was able to do with the USSR and really keep himself going. You talk about books that were written in difficult situations. Lefertover Prison might've been one of them. Um, yeah. But, yeah. but do, you, do you think we've gone past the point of no return when it comes to the campuses on some level? I know it sounds so depressing. Well, first of all, it is depressing. We are, we are in a very, very um, dangerous, I think, and difficult uh, um, period. And I would even say uh, crossroads um, mm. because uh, Natan, you mentioned Mr. Sharansky. I had the privilege of working with him, as you know, for for well over a decade, including taking him to over 65 different college campuses back, uh, oh my God, it's almost 20 years ago, it's frightening. Um, but he used to say, and this was, it was so prescient, he used to say 20 years ago when we were on college campuses, he used to make the point that the majority of the American population were, were very supportive of Israel. And the majority of the European continent were already turning against Israel. This is 20 years ago. And one of the things he used to say is uh, college campuses in America are little islands of Europe in America. The progressive anti-nationalist, anti-military, anti-national pride movement sweeping Europe, which led to the creation of the European Union, which has its you know good aspects to it, but not then wrote a whole book about identity and the importance of of, of having national identities and not rejecting them. And, and, and John Lennon's, you know, uh, song, imagine that we didn't have any nations or religions, et cetera. It was not necessarily something that was going to be um, productive for humanity. Um, but no. the point that he made was that the college campuses in America were already, were already there, were already anti-nationalist, uh, using the term nationalist in a positive, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, context, national pride. Um, anti-military, again, using the military as a positive thing, defending democracy, defending our countries, defending people, promoting public safety. Um, uh, Anti-Zionist, anti-Israel, the beginning of what we see today, the cancel culture, the beginning of what we see today is the progressive uh, um, uh, racism, uh, what have you, activism, um, which of course, we're all against racism, but the the, the cancel culture and this kind of woke, um, yeah. super progressive uh, media that we're all familiar with today, Natan predicted it 20 years ago. Um, and one of the points that he made was not just that, that campuses were little islands of Europe, which is a cute way of saying it. The point he was saying was, if this is where the campuses are 20 years uh, at this point, then if we wonder what American society is going to be like in 20 years, which is now, Exactly. The point I'm making is that we can look at Europe then. America now is where Europe was 20 years ago. Um, 
anti-Zionist, mm. anti-national identity, uh, um, and, and and all the rest of the, the negativity, unfortunately, of that agenda. Not that it's there that, that we can't support liberal or progressive um, values and and approaches to public policy issues when they're worthy of supporting. Right. I mean, we, we in America have the, the best national health service, public health service in the Western world. There's nothing wrong with Americans wishing to see America live up to that same value, be able to provide very, very excellent public health care. And the same way uh, that there are other values that the progressive uh, world you know, wants, to, wants to promote in terms of opportunities and, and uh, equality and what have you. Um, but the whole point is that the anti-Israel sentiment within the, the American uh, um, political echelon today on the far left and the, and the far right, and now more and more even on the more moderate left, was something that was entirely predictable. So now yeah. you asked me, sorry, that was kind of a rant there, but you asked no, me, no. Is, the, is the cause lost in, on college campuses? My answer is no, it's not okay. lost. And one of the reasons it's not lost is because there are enough people, good people, thinking people, who are willing to stand up and, and, and fight against this trend. It's not too late. But we go back to this issue of whether it's the language we choose, like indigenous people, or mm. to be standing up and saying, yes, I am a proud Zionist, and Zionism is nothing more and nothing less, as Abba even said, than, than the, uh, the political uh, liberation, national liberation movement of the, Jewish, of the Jewish people, people. And, yeah. and the willingness, Jews and non-Jews, students and faculty and alumni and donors to stand up and say, Ad Khan, as we say in Hebrew, this, this far mm-hmm. and no further to allow the, the cancel, kind of the woke cancel culture to, to take over. Um, I think that there still is hope. And, yeah. And, um, okay. So, uh, that's one of the reasons I'm willing to go and talk on college campuses. You know, mm-hmm. I, I may not be Nathan Sharansky or Michael Oren or Cipia Tovelli, who are the, the public figures who Terrific. get eyes thrown at them or, or, or get, uh, um, you know, attacked or, or shouted down. But it's very important that we continue to be present on campuses and insist that our moderate and, and reasonable voices uh, are heard. Um, or at and, the very least, that there's a discussion. Yeah, because. Absolutely. Exactly. A lot of times there's not, you can have a discussion, you can agree to disagree, but you have to listen to the other side respectfully. I mean, yeah. I see that with some of the advocacy work that I do, in particular for Yudad and Shamron for Judea and Samaria. People don't even want to have the discussion. Yeah. So that, and that's yeah. incredibly frustrating. So, yeah. and hopefully maybe that'll change. We shall see. Neither of us are giving up anytime soon. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Okay. So on that note, because I know you probably haven't even had your dinner yet, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I want to thank One Israel Fund, specifically Shana, who's just coming out of maternity leave, doing an awesome job and back at work. And really for really for One Israel Fund for allowing me to choose my guests and once a month have a discussion about issues that many of us really are not familiar with. I can't tell you how much I have learned from you tonight and from the other guests that we've oh, had. For those of you who are not familiar, you can go on the website, the One Israel Fund website. You can see all the webinars. You can see virtual tours that we've been doing over the last year to try and bring these places out to you. And hopefully we're going to start doing real tours um, with real people on a real bus very soon. Uh, just in the meantime, everybody should be well. It looks like even though here in Israel, we've, to some degree, beaten back the fourth wave. It looks like it's uh, rearing its ugly head in other places. And so something that is not going to go away for a long time, and we're going to have to work our way around. But um, thank you, Arya, really for everything that you're doing. And, um, and I will you know, stay posted on a lot of those really tremendous advances that we're making. And every time I drive around now and I look at the solar fields, it's like now I have a little bit more knowledge than I had before and appreciation and uh, wish that the bureaucracy would loosen up a bit so we could even do more. So thank you again so much for joining. Again, thank you to One Israel Fund. And thank you to everybody who's watching and tuning in. And I hope that you enjoyed. So Eve Harrow, Director of Community Development and Tourism for One Israel Fund, signing off for now. Take care, everybody. Goodbye for now. My name is Jeremy Gimpel, and I live here in the mountains of Judea. 
And in these unprecedented times, I wanted to offer you a gift from the land of Israel. We've been here at the cutting edge of the Jewish return to the land of Israel. We've come to the place where King David first assembled his men and where he wrote most of the book of Psalms. We are quite literally transforming this desert mountain area into a Garden of Eden-like oasis. Watching prophecy manifest into reality, we felt called to reach out to the nations, to teach them lessons from the Bible in the original Hebrew, unlocking insights and understandings that you can only get if you read the text in its original language and from a Judean perspective. I hope to see you at the Land of Israel Fellowship. Shalom.